Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for the brilliant sunshine out there. We thank you for just who you are and that you are sovereign. And that includes everything. You are sovereign over the, this entire universe. We don't even know the farthest reaches, the extent of this universe, and yet you are over it and sovereign over it. You are sovereign over this entire world. And we know that you allow Satan to run amok in this world right now, but that there will be a day when you will put an end to all of that. And in the meantime, Lord, we cry out for your strength and your power to stand up against him, to stand up against the evil things we see happening in our country and in this world. At the same time, loving the sinner as we stand up against the sin. Sharing the gospel message with everyone and anyone we meet, no matter who they are. Lord, we're thankful that you have saved us, that you have reached into our lives, that you have opened our spiritual eyes to see the truth. Because there are so many that are just so hopelessly lost and they're chasing after so many things they think will make them happy and they're just left so destitute and empty. Lord, we thank you for revealing the truth to us. We never want to take that for granted. We thank you for giving us your word. We never want to take that for granted. It reveals to us the truth of who you are and how you want us to live our lives. So Lord, I pray your spirit would go forth, work in our hearts, work in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a lot of you are well into uh, your garden season right now. Uh, here are some of the most different looking and intriguing plants that you could be growing in your garden right now if you wanted to try your hand at them. You've heard of broccoli, you've heard of cauliflower, but have you heard of Romanesco broccoli? This type of broccoli is so interesting, you can already see it here is it naturally designs itself with what's called a fractal form. Meaning that a design zoomed in is the same overall as the design zoomed out. And in mathematical theory, this design could go on forever. No, that's not a weird set design piece from an 80s alien movie. In fact, this is a variety of a pretty common garden-grown vegetable. Anybody know what it is? Kohlrabi. Yep, purple kohlrabi. Still looks a little odd, though, doesn't it? The next one is not a mistake. You might think I put this one in mistake. This is not a mistake. Okay? <laughs> Dandelion. Something that homeowners have spent years spraying with Roundup is actually a plant packed with tons of vitamins and other nutrients. In fact, dandelion greens are filled with more nutrients than some of your standard grocery store produce. They're good for eye health, bone health, and weight loss. They're also one of the first food sources for bees in the spring, so there's my perhaps unwanted, but given nonetheless, two cents. 
And lastly, you don't have to buy your loofahs at the store. Those synthetic ones are based on the natural fruit design of the natural grown loofah. Same name. The fruit of the loofah plant contains this fibrous mesh that when dried becomes the skeleton that can be used as a scrubbing sponge. In our passage this morning, Jesus references a crop that, is, that was very well known in that time and culture, had been well known for thousands of years, and has been well known for the thousands of years since. And this crop is used all over the world, which was his point in using it in, in his illustration, so everyone everywhere would be able to understand what was his ultimate point. What was that ultimate point, and how should that dramatically transform the way we live out the rest of our days here on earth? We last left Jesus and his disciples in a very climactic situation last week, didn't we? This was the absolute height of his popularity, even in this third phase of his ministry known as the year of opposition. Jesus had commissioned his disciples to go get a donkey and her colt for him to ride on and head towards Jerusalem from Bethany and Bethphage. Crowds in Jerusalem early, that came early for the upcoming Passover had poured out of the city to meet Jesus on his way in by laying down cloaks of pledging their loyalty to a new king, waving palm branches, um, of military victory and shouting references to a messianic psalm about the coming king of salvation. Those crowds continued to swell and swell. The shouting got louder and louder. And anything the Pharisees thought they could do to Jesus was impossible at that point. That is, if they didn't want a flat-out mob rebelling against them and killing them uh, right then and there. But in between where we left Jesus in our passage last week, at the height of his popularity in this first triumphal entry, and where we pick up with him this week, things have changed a little bit. Things have calmed down a lot. Following Jesus' triumphal entry in Jerusalem, the other synoptic gospels tell us that Jesus returns to Bethany by the end of the day on that Palm Sunday. The following day, on Monday, Jesus walks into Jerusalem again, cursing the fig tree on the way in, and clears out the temple of the money changers for the second time in his earthly ministry, then leaves the city again at the end of that day. On Tuesday, Jesus and his disciples once again enter Jerusalem and go back to the temple, and Jesus does a lot of teaching that day. It's in this teaching, teaching that we find several parables, including those of the two sons, the wicked land tenants, and the wedding banquet. During this teaching, Jesus is challenged several times by the religious leaders, but stands up to all of it. That same day, Jesus leaves the temple and makes his way to the Mount of Olives and gives his famous Olivet Discourse of both Matthew 24 and 25, describing events and phenomena that will surround both his rapture of the church and his second coming, including more parables in connection with those end times events. 
It's after that whole sermon that spans two entire chapters of Matthew 24 and 25 that teaches and reveals a ton straight from the Son of God himself about what will happen in the end times later that Tuesday afternoon that our passage this morning takes place. So a lot has happened in between Palm Sunday and where we pick up on the following Tuesday afternoon. It's been a couple of days since the triumphal entry we talked about last week took place. I wanted to set up for us a little bit of the timing and the setting for where John picks up what happens next. It's already been, as you heard, a very busy day for Jesus on this Tuesday. And he's still in the Jerusalem area, probably still on the Mount of Olives, having just finished up his whole Olivet Discourse about the end times when some men approach where they are. These men are not the religious leaders, and they're not Jewish in ethnicity. In fact, the reason they're mentioned here is John, in John is because they're different from anyone that has been a part of Jesus' ministry so far. And that's the entire point that drives Jesus to say what he does in this morning's passage. So, if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 12. We're going to be picking up in verses 20 through 21. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn here or look this up on your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. Uh, John chapter 12, verses 20 through 21, we read this. Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. As noted by biblical scholarship, these were most likely men who were Greek in ethnicity and who wandered the ancient world searching for the truth. As we see in Acts 17, with Paul's interactions with the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill, the Greeks were always into discussing the latest philosophical trends. To discuss philosophy and search for the truth was part of their society and culture. But there were some who took it above and beyond that to go explore the ancient world looking for it. These specific Greek philosophical wanderers were most likely drawn to Judaism and the wisdom they found in its teachings and would include themselves in the big Jewish feasts such as the upcoming Passover. That's why they're in Jerusalem in the first place. Thus they had been in Jerusalem had possibly been there when Jesus rode in during his triumphal entry only a couple days before this, witnessed the chaos that surrounded him as the rumored Messiah that day. It's also quite possible that Jesus did all of his teaching earlier that Tuesday morning in the court of Gentiles of the temple, since that's where he had driven the money changers out the day before, and these Greeks heard every word he had taught that morning. And so upon finding out that Jesus had simply relocated to the Mount of Olives very close by, they take it as an opportunity to go see if they can meet this Jesus of Nazareth, the purported Messiah who possessed so much wisdom 
and knowledge. One biblical scholar pointed out that the way the Apostle John uses the word see here, they began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. As in how these Greeks wanted to see Jesus was language that John used meant to describe that they had already put their faith in him at this point. As such, they wanted to see Jesus to express their faith in him. If you haven't picked up on it yet, these philosophical Greek wanderers, although fascinated by Judaism and its God, were not Jewish by ethnicity. They were Gentiles. And that's the overwhelming point here. As such, normally the Jewish people in the area and the Gentile Greeks in the area had quite a bit of hostility towards each other. It's understandable, since if you know any Jewish history, it had only been a couple of years before this that the Greek people nearly wiped out the Jewish people in Judea for not worshiping their pagan deities. So for these Gentile Greeks to approach Philip to see Jesus is already a very interesting development. Why Philip as one of Jesus' disciples? As mentioned by biblical scholars, it's because Philip is one of the only disciples of Jesus with a Greek-sounding name. John points out that Philip is from Bethsaida, which these Greeks may have also found out. Bethsaida was near more Gentile-predominant cities like the Decapolis, and Philip may have had several Gentile trade contacts. That's how these men may have even found out about Philip in the first place and thought, that's it. That's our connection. He's who we're going to go see. Now, Philip doesn't go straight to Jesus, however. He first inquires with Andrew as to what they should do. Verse 22, Philip came and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Now, why Andrew? Well, simply probably because that's the personality of both of them. They were people who naturally wanted to bring other people to come meet Jesus. We saw that in John's gospel already. If you remember, it's a long time ago. Back in John chapter 1, we read that Andrew's the one who brings his brother, Simon Peter, to Jesus. And Philip's the one who brings Nathaniel to Jesus. Philip just wanted to check with Andrew first and make sure that they were in agreement that these Greek men were screened enough to be allowed to see Jesus. As one biblical scholar pointed out, since these Gentile Greeks have put their faith in Jesus, this was the climax and closing of Jesus' first and largest chapter of his time on earth, also known as his public ministry. From him getting baptized till this very moment has all been his public ministry. Now, after this moment, it's going to start transitioning to Jesus' private ministry. After the closing of chapter 12 in John's Gospel, Jesus would focus mostly on his private ministry with his disciples. We see that with Jesus' Last Supper with them at the opening 
of chapter 13. Now this observation goes hand in hand with what Jesus declares next, verse 23. And Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. As noted by one biblical scholar, every other time Jesus has made mention of the hour, or in other words, another term that he would refer that he would use to refer to his death and resurrection, it's always been in the future tense. It's always been in the yet to come understanding. But here, for the very first time, Jesus says that that hour has come. It's arrived. What changed? What happened that led Jesus to declare that hour has finally come? The openness of Gentiles to put their faith in Jesus was what happened. That's what changed everything. Now, Jesus' public ministry, which culminated in even Gentiles putting their faith in him, was fulfilled. And because of that, the hour had come for him to hurtle headlong towards the cross that would pay for the sin of and win the salvation for everyone, both Jewish and Gentile. His ministry had culminated in everyone coming to him in faith, and he would very shortly pay for their faith in him by providing the necessary salvation to them in his death and resurrection. It didn't matter who you were, what background, ethnicity, past, biggest sins, biggest weaknesses, biggest shames, anything about who you were. Everyone could now come to Jesus in faith and in repentance. That culmination of Jesus' public ministry, of anyone and everyone coming to him in faith, directly leading to the cross, is what leads Jesus to declare this next. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In connection with our opening illustration, Jesus uses imagery that anyone who heard him that day, 2,000 years ago, along with anyone originally reading John's gospel about 60 years after that, or anyone today in any part of the world would understand a simple grain of wheat. Again, Jesus uses imagery to describe what happens to the grain of wheat is noted by one biblical scholar, it must first be buried. What does that mean? Buried, a euphemism for what? Death. It must be buried, a euphemism for death, before any life can come out of it. What I found interesting as I looked up information about wheat germination is that it only requires a soil temperature of 50 degrees Fahrenheit, making it one of the most adaptive cr crops around the world. I got a kick out of this too. Some crops will take even up to 21 days after planting the seed before you see anything start to pop up out of the soil. If given the right growing conditions though, you wanna know how long you only have to wait after planting or burying a grain of wheat before you see life? Three days. That's it. The grain of wheat in Jesus' illustration, if left unburied, 
will keep the potential of life bound up within it. However, if it's buried, it will produce much fruit. That is, more heads of grain, resulting in more seeds that lead to more life. But that grain of wheat, that first grain of wheat, must first be buried. And in connection with himself, Jesus is saying that in order to be buried, he first must die. Verse 25 is the life-transformative verse that completely changes the way anyone with a worldly perspective should see his or her life. Verse 25, He who loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Now before you start going down all these rabbit trails in your mind, what Jesus is not saying is for us to physically and emotionally beat ourselves into a hatred of our lives. That is not what he is saying here. A better way to translate this is either detest or denounce in that you love it less or outright reject it. Denounce it. So he or she who loves and commits and focuses on and invests in their life in this world will ultimately lose it upon earthly death. Where the Bible says their soul will immediately go to a temporary place of torment only to then be raised back to life with their body to stand in judgment before God and then cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Is it worth it? Is it worth spending all your time investing in this life? Is it worth doing all the things that puff up your pride, swell your ego, and get you all the likes, hearts, supportive comments, reshares, and retweets? Is it worth it? Is it worth spending all your time on yourself and what you want to be doing? Is it worth spending all your time, all your money on yourself and your comforts? Is it worth it? Pride will always be the Achilles heel of humanity. It's what the first sin is boiled down to. We would rather see what it was like to be like God instead of just trusting him. And the root of every other sin we as humans commit is pride. We think we know better than God. We think we can do better than God. We want more than who God is. In addition, in this month of June, where human pride is exalted above anything God's word clearly teaches, including the parts about what he defines as human gender and sexuality, because, you know, he's the one who created us to begin with, and including the parts where we're not to celebrate our pride, but rather humble ourselves before him, Jesus' statement in verse 25 goes completely against all of that. In a world where lived experiences have more authority than what God himself says in his word, or where we as humans have the shameless audacity 
to uh, interpret anything he says in a humanistic way or even manipulate, twist, and pervert what he simply says to say something it never intended or think we can pick and choose which parts we like about a much more digestible Jesus and reject other outdated parts, Jesus' statement in verse 25 goes completely against all of that. A worldly life is entirely focused on self. What I can do to better myself, what I can do to better my life and my family, and what I can do to earn entrance into heaven. And that's the default that each and every human being will succumb to naturally. A life following Jesus is and is supposed to look completely different. As Jesus says in verse 25, we're to reject exalting life in this world. We're to reject it. We're to denounce it. That's what repentance is, is it not? It's a repentance of sin and it's a repentance from self. It's declaring and committing to God, my life is not my own. All I've done is made a mess of it with my sin. I give it to you based on Jesus dying and rising again to pay the payment for death for it on my behalf. Repentance also includes a renouncing of yourself, a renouncing of your dreams, a renouncing of your desires, your goals, your ambitions, renouncing all of it and committing yourself entirely to Jesus as King. Really, all we're doing when we do that is answering God's call to bring ourselves to what he originally created us for. To live for him entirely, glorify him entirely, and trust him entirely. If you've fallen asleep on me in any way so far, wake up and pay attention right now. The repentance of our sin based on Jesus' salvation of us as Savior through his death and resurrection and the renouncing of who we are, pledging our loyalty to Jesus as Lord and King instead, is what grants us the life eternal with him, Jesus mentions in verse 25. It's both. We can't think we can just say a prayer and move on with the rest of our lives, living them the way we want, not caring about what God says in his word, and not care about living it out. Repentance must include renouncing of ourselves or it's not true repentance. Jesus is very clear about this in verse 25. Repentance must include, as a fruit, a daily seeking to present ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, as Paul writes about in Romans 12, renouncing ourselves, renouncing our dreams and desires, and seeking the kingdom of God above all else, as Jesus says in Matthew 6. 
the default to self and pride will be a war we'll be fighting the rest of our lives. But it's a war with the Holy Spirit's power we must seek to win each and every day for the glory of God above all else. Galatians 5, 16 through 17 says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the Spirit, and the Spirit is against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. They're constantly warring against each other in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. You can't have one foot in your fallen humanity and one foot in the Holy Spirit because they are in opposition to one another. You either have to be in one camp, both feet, or you're going to be in the other camp, both feet. One way to walk by the Spirit in this way, to war against the flesh or human pride that the Holy Spirit stands in direct opposition against, is the antidote. For pride. And what's the antidote for pride? Humility. To humble ourselves before God at the beginning of every day and to humble ourselves before God in each and every situation, dilemma, argument, inconvenience, or trial we find ourselves in. The Apostle James puts it this way eerily similar to what Jesus already said in verse 25. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you've heard me say this before. But if whatever your viewpoint on any given topic, especially the hot topic, uh, social and cultural issues, if your viewpoint on that, the world openly and readily embraces, that's a huge red flag. If, however, your viewpoint on especially hot topic, cultural, societally issues is reviled by the world, that's a very, very good sign. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. If you want to be a friend of the world, you are automatically an enemy of God. Who would you rather be an enemy of? Would you rather be an enemy of this world that's only passing away and will be destroyed by fire one day? Or are you going to be an enemy of Almighty God? Come on! Or do you think that the Scripture says to no purpose... He jealously desires the Spirit whom He has made to dwell in us. He wants us to follow Him, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed. He stands against the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. If we take a step back 
from whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever argument or whatever trial or whatever inconvenience we find ourselves in, if we take a step back from that situation and we take a deep breath and we say, I'm going to humble myself before God and simply submit to his commands here, 100% of the time, we'll know from God's word what is the right and God-glorifying word or action to take. Most of the time is that we, A, (laughs) instead either blow up or act or respond in an entirely human, prideful way, and B, we don't know what is in God's word to know how to speak or act the way he wants us to. That is why reading and first of all knowing what God's commands are in his word is so important to our earthly everyday lives. And simply humbling ourselves before God in any given situation will give us the humility and clarity to follow through with those commands. See, verse 25 wasn't just about Jesus. As I've been referencing all this time, it's all about us as his followers, too. We're supposed to follow him, and what does that mean? Emulate him as the example. Jesus rejected his earthly life so much so that he went to the cross out of obedience to God the Father and God the Father's will and out of his love for us. In the same way, he's called us to reject our earthly lives so much so that we humbly do whatever God's word commands of us and entrust ourselves entirely up to that very same divine will. Jesus points this out exactly in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. You want to love Jesus? You want to serve Jesus? Then you must follow Jesus. And follow Jesus in every way he's called us to. Where Jesus goes, in other words, as referenced by one biblical scholar, where Jesus leads, we are to follow. The Apostle John spent a considerable amount of time talking about how Jesus is the good shepherd. We cover that extensively. And we merely follow him as his sheep. We don't give him advice as to where he's going to lead us or what he wants to do with our lives. We just simply follow him as the sheep of the good shepherd. If we don't know his voice, i.e. what's in his word, how can we follow him? If we don't humble ourselves as simply knowing we're his sheep to follow his leading, how can we follow him? Jesus lastly lays out what following him looks like. What does it look like? From verse 26. Following Jesus looks like serving Jesus. Really, it's serving him in complete humility. For we cast off 
any of our dreams, our ambitions, our goals, our desires in life, and simply do what he calls us to do. And in every case, it's in serving him. This service to him then goes hand in hand with serving our fellow human beings. That's humility. And that's humbling ourselves before God. It's no wonder then that Jesus says what the Apostle James will reiterate. Humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. We're not supposed to look for our own exaltation. We're not to celebrate our own pride. We leave that up to God. We leave our own exaltation in accordance to his word up to God. Instead, we are to humbly serve him and also serve him by serving others. We help take care of those in need. We build others up all the time and not give one ounce of thought to our own exaltation. We encourage one another. We admonish one another where needed. We bear one another's burdens. We uphold each other in prayer. And we think of everyone else but ourselves. In Ephesians 5, Paul gives the command to husbands to love their wives by serving them. It's not by lording over any kind of headship or authority. It's by serving them. Love your wives by serving them, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in every way. Ephesians 5. Likewise, Paul gives the command to wives to respect their husbands in mutual service. A husband and father is to lead his family under the headship of Christ by loving and serving them. No matter what it is, love and loving one another equals humble service. You want to know what love is according to God's word? It's a working, humble, serving love. That's what it is. Humble service. That's how God's word defines it. Nowhere and never is it a prideful love. God's word always defines love as humble service. We love God by humbly serving him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We love others by humbly serving them. Husbands and wives love each other by humbly serving one another. In short, in order to love God, in order to follow Jesus, in order to serve Jesus, we must renounce ourselves. We have to do it. We must renounce and reject ourselves and devote our loyalty entirely to what the King wants and has called us to. That is then seen in humble service to Him his commands and his word, and to others. We will be given life eternal after these earthly lives are through, and we will be exalted by God the Father in his timing. It's that 
simple. We as human beings like to overcomplicate everything, but really, it's that simple. Jesus' words in verses 25 and 26 are very simple. Those words are what we'll close with and let resonate within us, impacting every area of our lives. The one who loves his life loses it. And the one who hates his life in this world, the one who denounces, gives it up, rejects it, gives it in loyalty to the king in this world, will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Humble yourselves before God, and he will lift you up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this very short passage, but very powerful words here in your word. A very simple message, very difficult to do, because our human default and our fallenness and sinfulness is to default to our flesh and to human pride. But Lord, through your Holy Spirit, I pray that you continue to transform us more and more away from a life of pride and, and worldliness and selfishness and more and more into a life of simply following you and humbly serving you. Lord, I pray that we would dig into your word to find out what your commands are in the first place, how you want us to live these lives in this world. And that we would surrender every single part of ourselves as a living sacrifice up to your Holy Spirit to transform and radically change into following you in every way. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.